0: The terror most of us know is anonymous, a backstreet mugger, an urban guerrilla, or even more anonymous, the threat of nuclear war. But what happens when the terror has a face on it, when it's one of our neighbors, a bully? The man who terrorized Skidmore, Missouri was just that, a bully who struck fear into the heart of a town. Even the town marshal was scared to take him on. A one-man reign of terror in a town that just didn't know how to handle it. On the morning of July 10th, 1981, Ken Rex McElroy went to a local tavern with his wife, Trina. Over the course of the morning, the pub filled with other local townspeople. After finishing his drink, Ken McElroy bought a six-pack of beer and he and Trina went out to his pickup truck. While sitting there in his truck, Ken was shot at and hit twice. Once by a centerfire rifle and once by a 22 caliber rimfire rifle. As the shooting took place right outside of the crowded tavern, there were later determined to be 46 potential witnesses to the crime, including Trina McElroy herself. However, only Trina ever attempted to actually identify a culprit, with every single one of the other 45 witnesses claiming that they couldn't tell who had shot the guns or straight up had not seen the shooting take place. To this day, no one has ever been arrested or admitted guilt for the murder, making it one of the most unusual unsolved crimes in American history. This is the story of Ken Rex McElroy. Missouri is a small town, about as small as they come. Boasting a population of around 560 in the early 1900s, that already tiny number has slowly fallen over the years, dipping down to 284 during the 2010 census and a mere 245 at the 2020 census. In 1981, the year that Ken Rex McElroy was killed, the population stood somewhere around 437. Small towns are well known for being places where everybody knows everybody, and moreover where everybody knows everybody else's business. Rumors, gossip, and drama are practically town news in towns like Skidmore. As soon as one person knows something, half the town knows. That's what makes the murder of Kenrex McElroy so intriguing. The fact that it was committed in broad daylight, in the middle of town, with dozens of potential witnesses. And yet no one seems to know who exactly it was that killed Ken Rex McElroy. The fact of the matter is that, of course, somebody does know who committed this murder. It's quite possible that every single person who lived in Skidmore, Missouri at that time knows. But in the 40 plus years since the murder took place, with the exception of Ken's wife, Trina, not a single one of these individuals has come forward, or given a single clue as to who the culprit may be. Moreover, very few seem interested in actually solving this mystery. But why? Why has the town of Skidmore closed ranks and protected a murderer, or multiple murderers, for all these years? Well, the answer to that is quite simple. Because Ken Rex McElroy was, to put it bluntly, an absolute monster who terrorized the town of Skidmore for years prior to his untimely death. Searching for a motive for this murder is a moot point seeing as the answer to the question of who wanted to kill Ken Rex McElroy may as well be everyone who lived in the town of Skidmore, Missouri in 1981. Still, you might say, being a bad person doesn't mean that the rest of the town should have enacted vigilante justice upon him. After all, isn't that what our court system is here for? In general, I think most would agree that your average Joe shouldn't be acting as judge, jury and executioner, even if the victim in question has committed multiple crimes. But in order to fully understand the case of Kenrex McElroy and why the town of Skidmore has turned a blind eye to his killing, we need to first go back and explore who exactly Kenrex McElroy was, and what he did to turn the rest of the town against him. Then you can decide for yourself if what happened here was justified or not. Ken Rex McElroy was born on June 1st, 1934 in Kansas to Tony and Mabel McElroy, farmers who moved between Kansas and the Ozarks regions before eventually settling down in Skidmore, about 100 miles north of Kansas City. Ken was the 15th of the couple's 16 children, so just let that sink in for a moment. After dropping out of school in the 8th grade, Ken quickly began to gain something of a bad reputation around town, to say the least. Like most criminals, his crimes started small, petty theft and the like. But of course, over the years, they began to escalate. By the time of his death, his rap sheet had expanded to include such offenses as assault, child molestation, statutory rape, arson, animal cruelty, burglary, and eventually attempted murder. So let's take a look at how he acquired a few of those charges. In his adult life, McElroy was known to have an affinity for young girls, as in preteens and teenagers to the point where the townspeople knew well to keep their daughters out of his sight. Sadly, Trina McLeod's parents did not get the memo in time, as she caught the predatory eye of Ken Rex McElroy at the age of 12. Yes, 12. McElroy was in his mid-30s, already had almost 10 children with several different women, and was already married to his second wife Alice at this time. But given what we know about Ken, it's hardly shocking that his marriage did not stop him from stalking and grooming Trina. It said that he would follow her school bus around town, honking until the driver would let Trina out to go with him. Once he had Trina under his thumb, he raped her repeatedly, until she ended up pregnant at the age of just 14. After discovering that she was pregnant, she dropped out of school and went to live with McElroy and his current wife, Alice. Now, Ken McElroy had gotten himself into a bit of a pickle, since, of course, the pregnancy provided some pretty difficult-to-deny evidence that he had raped Trina. He seemed to have hoped that keeping her locked up in his home would prevent the authorities from getting involved. However, 16 days after Trina gave birth, she and Alice, McElroy's wife, again I must remind you he is married, took the baby boy and fled to Trina's mother and stepfather's house, an act which set Ken off. He managed to track them down quite easily and forced them back to his house at gunpoint. Later, he would take Trina with him back to her mother and stepfather's home, where he shot the family dog before pouring gas throughout the house and setting it on fire. Thankfully, Trina's mother and stepfather were not home at the time, but their house did not have the same lock. A few days later, Trina took her son to the hospital for a checkup, and the doctor was able to sense from her jumpy and nervous disposition that something was wrong. He managed to get the full story out of her and alerted the authorities who placed Trina and her son in foster care. Following interviews with the police, McElroy was arrested and indicted for arson, assault and statutory rape. He was released on bail and immediately set out to figure out a way to get away with his crimes. Ken Rex McElroy met with his lawyer, Dick McFadden, who told him that if Trina testified, it would be difficult for him to get away with this. So, Ken McElroy decided that his best course of action was some good old-fashioned witness intimidation. He would park outside the foster home that Trina was staying at, sit and stare at the house for hours on end, and tell the parents that he would be willing to trade girl for girl, indicating that he knew how to get at their own daughter. The cops did nothing to stop this, telling Trina and her foster family that Ken McElroy wasn't technically breaking any laws by parking on the street outside of their house. In the meantime, Ken's lawyer pulled every trick he could to draw out the trial. He managed to get the charges split into two separate trials, and then consistently sought changes of venues for both, dragging the process on and on until a year had passed, and no actual trial had been held. All the while, in the background, Ken wormed his way back into Trina's life. Trina eventually told her foster family that she wanted to leave and go live with her grandmother, And although the family rightfully suspected that she would actually be headed straight back to McElroy, there was legally nothing they could do to prevent her from leaving. At around the same time, Ken went to his lawyer with a new idea. What if, he asked, he married Trina? Spouses cannot be compelled to testify against each other. Immediately, the two men set out to make this happen. Ken's divorce from Alice was processing quickly. Since Trina was still underage, a parent had to sign an affidavit allowing the marriage. Unfortunately, Trina's mother was already extremely frightened of Ken Rex McElroy, seeing as he had burned her house down, so she was relatively easily convinced to sign. Trina and Ken Rex McElroy were married when she was just 15 years old, and Ken McElroy's lawyer almost immediately called the prosecutor's office to gloat. Their one and only witness was now his client's wife. The charges, of course, were dropped. Having escaped charges of arson and rape, it's not surprising that Ken McElroy seemed to have felt invincible following this incident, as though the entire town of Skidmore was under his thumb. And so, it's also not surprising that he became even more emboldened, if that's possible. Like many criminals who feel emboldened, he began escalating his crimes even further. Ken's first attempted murder was committed against a farmer named Romaine Henry, In July 1976, Romaine heard gunshots going off somewhere on his property. When he tracked down the source of the noise, he found Ken parked in his truck. When Romaine confronted McElroy about being on his property, and moreover shooting a gun on his farm, Ken shot him twice, once in the stomach and then once in his forehead and cheek. Miraculously, Romaine Henry survived these wounds, but this was not the end of his dealings with McElroy. Although Ken Rex McElroy was arrested and charged with assault with the intent to kill, i.e. attempted murder, he and his lawyer quickly started pulling their normal tactics. For the lawyer, constant changes of venue requests and finding asinine reasons to delay the trial, and then for Ken, parking outside of Romaine Henry's house for hours on end. When the case finally did come to trial, Romaine testified that McElroy had shot him, and two neighbors testified that they had seen McElroy speeding away from the scene of the crime. However, McElroy's lawyer had managed, by some unknown means, to come up with two witnesses who claimed to have been with Ken at the time of the shooting, nowhere near Romaine's farm. Shockingly, the jury sided with Ken Rex McElroy, although who can say what sort of jury intimidation they may have dealt with, and he was then let off with no punishment whatsoever for nearly killing Romaine Henry. It's said that following the verdict, McElroy went around town saying that he might as well have killed Romaine as was becoming clear to everyone in the town, McElroy himself included. Ken had become so untouchable that it seemed entirely possible that he would quite literally get away with murder, and Romaine Henry wouldn't be the last person that McElroy would test this theory on. His next attempted murder started with, of all things, a piece of ten-cent candy. Now, we're gonna pause for just a moment to hear a word from today's sponsors. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. On April 25th, 1980, a few of Kenrex McElroy's 10 children had gone to the grocery store in Skidmore to buy some candy. At some point, one of the younger children started walking out of the store while holding candy that they had not yet paid for. The grocery clerk hollered at the girl to stop. This caused an argument between the clerk and the elder children. A confrontation that the store's owners, Lois and Beau Bowencamp, attempted to quell. However, McElroy's eldest daughter was furious and swore that her family would never shop at the store again. Less than 30 minutes after this argument took place, Ken Rex McElroy was there, brandishing a pocket knife at the Bowen Camps. The attempted murder didn't take place quite yet. In fact, McElroy seemed to calm down a bit when the Bowen Camps explained the full situation to him. However, later that night, the Bowen camps were treated to what was an all-too-familiar sight in Skidmore—the sight of Ken Rex McElroy's truck creeping up and down the street, passing their house over and over again. Ken did not back down, despite how inconsequential the original argument had been. It seemed that he had taken it as a personal insult. For days and weeks on end, the Bowen camps dealt with Ken lurking outside their home. The police once again saying that there was nothing they could do that Ken wasn't technically breaking the law. Despite doing what they could to avoid him, Ken McElroy's harassment escalated. He started driving up to their house and firing his shotgun into the air before driving off again. Reporting this to the police once again resulted in nothing but assurances that nothing serious would happen. On and on this harassment went, and the Bowen camps eventually resigned themselves to the fact that nothing was going to happen until McElroy reached his breaking point and erupted. And a few months later, that's precisely what happened. On July 8th, 1980, Bo Bowenkamp was out back behind his grocery store cutting up boxes, when Ken drove up outside the back door. After a short exchange, Ken pulled his shotgun on the 70-year-old Bo and shot him point-blank in the neck. Despite how serious of an injury this obviously is, like Romaine Henry, Bo Bowenkamp had a stroke of luck and managed to survive after spending 10 days in the hospital. Ken McElroy was arrested, but once again managed to slip out of jail in no time, telling everyone in earshot that he had shot Beau Bowenkamp in self-defense, that Beau had apparently been brandishing a knife at him. Anyone who dared publicly extend their sympathy to Beau received McElroy's trademark threatening stares and phone calls. For around a year, McElroy's lawyer continued to pull his usual tricks in order to get the trial pushed back, and Ken McElroy continued his harassment campaign of the Bowen Camp family. Their daughter, Joyce Monte, stated that, "...there were so many nights Dad couldn't go out and mow the yard or water the flowers because there was a truck parked down the street, and they were watching the house. We might not see him for three or four days, and then we'd see him every day for weeks. When you didn't know where he was, you didn't dare take the chance of not being on guard." McElroy went as far as to pay local children to spy for him, essentially, informing him about where certain people were at what time. The Bowen camps took similar countermeasures, with their family and friends sending coded messages, such as one friend sending her children to the grocery store for paper towels as a signal that McElroy was around. The trial eventually started on June 25th, 1981, in any other case, this would have been a relatively open and shut case. Both McElroy and Beau Bowenkamp agreed that Ken had shot Bo, and then McElroy simply claimed that he had done so in self-defense. However, this wasn't just any normal trial. It was a kenrex Rex McElroy trial, which meant that really, anything could happen. The end result of this trial was, in many ways, the worst potential outcome. For the first time, Ken Rex McElroy was found guilty of the crime he had been brought to court for. However, due to Missouri laws at the time, the jurors didn't have any information about McElroy's past behavior, since he had never actually been convicted of any of the crimes he had been indicted on. On paper, his record was clean, and as far as the jurors knew, this was his first criminal charge. As a result of this, potentially mixed with lingering doubts that the attempted murder could have perhaps been committed in self-defense, jurors gave Ken Rex McElroy an extremely short sentence, a mere two years. After this was announced, Ken was released on bail pending the routine 25-day appeal window. So despite being convicted of attempted murder, Ken Rex McElroy was back on the street for 25 days until the appeal window was up. It shouldn't come as any surprise that McElroy's ire was directed at one person in particular, Beau Bowenkamp. Reportedly a few days after his conviction, Ken sat in a local pub carrying an assault rifle and began going on about how he planned to use said rifle to finish the job that he had started with Beau. A local man named Pete Ward overheard this and rallied his sons and a few others around town to set up a neighborhood watch for the Bowen camps and reported the incident to the authorities. Theoretically, in a perfect world, McElroy should have been dragged back to jail right off the bat. However, the judge and lawyers involved set a date to bring McElroy before the judge for five days later, July 10th. But when July 10th arrived, rather than hearing of McElroy getting sent back to jail, Townspeople instead got the news that the hearing was getting pushed back to July 20th, as McElroy's lawyer claimed that he had a conflict, quote-unquote, that was 10 more days in which McElroy was free to enact his particular brand of terrorism on the town of Skidmore, Missouri. probably picked up at this point that a key aspect of Ken Rex McElroy's M.O. was intimidation. And this intimidation extended to law enforcement as well, to the point where oftentimes McElroy got away with his crimes in large part because local police officers turned a blind eye, too afraid for their own well-being to arrest him. Following the attempted murder of Bo Bowenkamp, McElroy held a town marshal at gunpoint after he indicated that he may have to testify against Ken in court, leading the man to quit his job, and placed threatening phone calls against the state trooper who had arrested him. No wonder then that the case perhaps wasn't as strong as it otherwise could have been. In addition, the fact that McElroy had a big city lawyer from Kansas City who knew all the tricks to get Ken off meant that the likelihood of getting him convicted was narrow, and since daring to accuse McElroy of a crime that he actually committed was a cardinal sin in his books, Attempting to send him to jail and failing could very well mean a lifetime of looking over your shoulder and finding him standing right there. And, given that McElroy was by no means a small man, six feet tall and 270 pounds are the figures normally thrown around, that alone could be a frightening sight for many. A local farmer, Kirby Gossley, later recalled, "...our law enforcement never went after him very hard. The son of a bitch would just as soon shoot them as anyone else." For a good long while, Kenrex McElroy more or less had the entire town of Skidmore in the palm of his hand, due to the residents and law enforcement alike being unwilling to confront him. Those rare few who even dreamt about standing up to him in any way, shape, or form faced intense intimidation, from finding rattlesnakes in their mailbox, to having a gun shoved in their face, to seeing a truck parked at the end of their driveway day in and day out, to simply having Kenrex McElroy stare you down from across the room as described by Beau Bowencamp's daughter Joyce. McElroy would just sit and glower at you, just stare at you, and you'd never know what he was thinking. The Trina McLeod and Beau Bowencamp charges were only two of 21 indictments that Ken Rex McElroy received over the course of his life. In the last one, the attempted murder of Beau Bowencamp was the only one that he was ever actually convicted for. The message for the people of Skidmore, Missouri was clear the justice system wasn't going to save them from Ken Rex McElroy's reign of terror. And it seems that a good segment of the citizens of Skidmore came to the conclusion that if the justice system wasn't going to end McElroy's reign of terror, they would simply have to take matters into their own hands. To use the local jargon, he needed killing. More after the break. Now we return to that day in July 1981, the day that Ken Rex McElroy was killed in front of a good percentage of the town with no witnesses to be found. That day, after getting the news that McElroy's hearing had fallen through, a group of local men went down to the Legion Hall in the town center to meet with the county sheriff and discuss what they could legally do in order to protect themselves from McElroy's wrath. It seems that the conversation wasn't particularly productive, and the sheriff eventually left to head over to a nearby town. Shortly after the sheriff left, the men who were at the Legion Hall got word that Ken McElroy was in town, down at the local tavern. It's not really known whether or not these men openly discussed an exact plan to murder Ken Rex McElroy, or if they all simply and silently came to the same conclusion. But regardless, they all ended up going over to the same tavern that they knew McElroy was at. And when he left, they followed him out, and one or more of them shot him in the back. The complete and utter lack of witness testimony, despite there being dozens of people around when McElroy was shot, truly speaks to how relieved these people must have been to be rid of him. Some sources say that a number of people around town disapproved of the murder. After all, murder is murder at the end of the day, and McElroy hadn't been actively attacking anyone when he was shot so you couldn't really claim it to be self-defense in the traditional sense. But no one seemed to be particularly upset that he was gone. The local police rounded up the few dozen people who had been out on the street when McElroy was murdered, and every last one of them claimed that they had not seen a thing. A telephone hotline was set up for people to call in with tips, but no one ever called. The only person who claimed to have seen anything was Trina McElroy, formerly McLeod, Who had been in the truck with Ken when he was shot. Trina pointed the finger at a young man named Del Clement. A county sheriff and the county prosecutor set up an inquest to try and determine if any arrest warrants could be issued, and if so, to whom. And once again, Trina was the only witness. Since no one could corroborate Trina's testimony, the jurors did not feel that it was enough to indict anyone. The U.S. Justice Department ordered a federal probe, and even under questioning from the feds, no one in Skidmore spoke up, and the probe ended without an indictment. Following the end of the federal probe in 1982, the county prosecutor stated that there is not sufficient evidence with which to establish guilt beyond a reasonable doubt. And that has been the status of the case ever since with not a single soul in Skidmore giving any indication as to who killed Kenrex McElroy in the 40-plus years that have since passed. Kenrex McElroy's life and death left a stain on Skidmore, Missouri that just hasn't been washed out in these intervening four decades. Like many rural areas of the US, the already tiny population has just continued to decline and Skidmore's dwindling population was arguably further driven away by the McElroy murder. Trina McElroy herself moved out of town. She later remarried and had a more or less normal life until dying of cancer in 2012, as did most of McElroy's dozen or so children. Though some involved in the case protest against the use of the word, the killing of Kenrex McElroy is perhaps the most well-known example of vigilante justice in modern America. Whether or not the entire group who went to the Legion Hall that day discussed killing McElroy amongst themselves, if there was a smaller group of the men who made the plan without informing the others, or if it was entirely spontaneous. At the end of the day, the men who killed Kenrex McElroy took the law into their own hands, and the witnesses who chose not to identify the killers actively chose to let them get away with it. The only question here really is quite simple. Were their actions justified? There's not really a right or wrong answer to that question. It'll likely vary heavily depending on your own personal point of view. However, most people seem to at least understand why the people of Skidmore, Missouri were driven to do what they did, even if they don't necessarily approve of vigilante justice. The town of Skidmore had long since learned how to tiptoe around Ken Rex McElroy's hair-trigger temper, and even then there was no guarantee that his brooding glare wouldn't fall on you or your family for reasons unfathomable to your average person. Regardless of who actually pulled the trigger, there's no doubt that everybody in Skidmore has been sleeping a little easier since the days of McElroy's death. Ideally, of course, one could have hoped that the justice system would have prevented all of this from happening. But given how thoroughly law enforcement and the justice system failed the people of Skidmore, you can hardly blame them for taking matters into their own hands and protecting the rest of the town at the cost of Kenrex McElroy's life. I think Joyce Monty, the Bowen camp's daughter, sums it up best. When a person is set loose by the courts to go back to the community they have been preying on, what recourse do the citizens of that community have then? To this day, I do not believe there was a conspiracy to kill Ken McElroy. I think the events that led up to his death were coincidence on top of coincidence that were finally blown apart when he came into town that day like he owned the place. People had had enough. Justice was finally served. It wasn't in the way most of us would have wanted, but sometimes you just have to take what you're given and be satisfied with it. Others have a much less sympathetic viewpoint when looking back at the Kenrex McElroy incident. Former Postmaster Jim Hartman told the New York Times, I don't think that anyone feels any different than you would about the people who invented penicillin. Nobody tried to hang them for finding a way to kill a germ. Dave Dunbar, the former town marshal, merely said, It's really a shame about the Silverado. That was a really nice truck. To this day, the story of Ken Rex McElroy remains unresolved. And you know what? Maybe it should stay that way.